Welcome to the MindBeat podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health, from sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation. MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of the MindBeat podcast. I'm Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. We've got a great episode for you today. We're going to be joined very shortly by John Zogby, who is Senior Partner of John Zogby Strategies, which is one of the nation's preeminent uh, polling firms. We've had the opportunity to partner with John and his firm to uh, commission a nationwide survey on administrator and parent attitudes about school-based mental health. Uh, really, really important work. We're going to talk about some of the insights that John and his team have from that survey, and we're, we could not be more thrilled about that uh, discussion. How are you doing today, Lynn? I'm doing well, Duncan. How about you? Good, good. Thanks. So so we've had our, our podcast out for a couple of weeks. Any any feedback from uh, friends and family or yes. uh, customers, uh, any folks that we work with? Yes. Well, definitely from, from folks we work with, which has been lovely. I've got a lot of great comments through LinkedIn and some other uh, places where uh, you know, we put the podcast, uh, our notifications for it out. But I think the most touching response was from my son. My son is 18, my one and only child, and he's in college now, a freshman. And when I sent him the episode, we both have Spotify, so I sent it to him with a Spotify link, and he wrote back, listen to the podcast, Mom, I'm really proud of you. And that just made me so happy. I can't tell you how both satisfying and heartwarming that was to hear from him. So uh, cool. <laughs> I feel cool in this uh, in his eyes. and. I'm, I'm really excited about the podcast. And so, so it yeah. sounds like age 18, 18 is the age at which kind of a, a child realizes that their parent can actually have a positive contribution to broader <laughs> society. It is not just kind of a, you know, anchor on their broader life and, and whatnot. So that's, Maybe. that's, that's a good, that's a good sign. Maybe. I don't know. My kid might be a little unique. I'm not sure, but, um, you know, some kids may recognize it sooner. Some may recognize it later, but I'm glad it's happening now. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, so my, my my kids are a little bit younger, and I, I would say they uh, they they I, I got a little bit of eye rolling when they heard the the podcast. <laughs> sure. But uh, right. and then I had an awkward moment yesterday where I had I had LinkedIn up on my phone, mm -hmm. and and just coincidentally enough, it had uh, one of the audio ads for uh, for the podcast oh, really? kind of on there, and so. As I was shutting down my phone to go into this meeting, I accidentally kind of hit the screen and it mm -hmm. activated the audio and I heard my voice kind of talking. And so I, I shut it off really quickly, but the rest of the folks in the meeting were like, are you listening to yourself on your podcast? So <laughs> it was kind of like, no, 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 really, let me, let me, let me explain. So a little bit of a, a little bit of an awkward, awkward moment there. But, How do you um, feel about hearing your own voice? I'm still getting used to that, I have to admit. It is, it's a it's, little it's weird. It's definitely a little bit, it's definitely a little bit, a little bit off-putting. So, uh, but you know, you get, you get used to it. So, um, why don't we jump right in today? I'm really excited about uh, getting to, to John and our, our conversation with him, but why don't you kick us off with our top three list for today? Yes, as we do every episode, we're going to get started with our weekly top three, where we share three big ideas in response to key mental health questions. So today's top three is three hurdles to youth receiving mental health care. So my three hurdles that I've 
that I think are the, are the main problems are number one, stigma. There's social, religious, cultural, and familial stigmas, stigmas excuse me, around mental health that do create a barrier to support. I think uh, a lot of families will sort of minimize uh, symptoms or, you know, and sort of be in denial about some of the things that are happening with kids. I think that some families actually have a fear that if they go to therapy that they might uh, spill all the tea, so to speak, or tell all of the family business. And so uh, that may create a, a barrier to care. I think, um, you know, when I was, uh, I used to be an administrator at a charter school and we had a student there who, um, you know, expressed that she was hearing voices and a lot of her symptoms were consistent with um, with uh, schizophrenia. And when we shared this with the parents, what she was complaining of, um, they sort of minimized it and said, well, well, we'll take it to prayer. We'll see what happens. And so I think that there are some challenges, you know, again, around uh, both religious, social, family, cultural stigmas that prevent kids from getting uh, the health care or the mental health care that they need. Um, I think my number two would be access. And within that, I kind of have some subgroups, but one of which is insurance coverage. Uh, I think that many families don't necessarily qualify for Medicaid, but they don't necessarily have sufficient coverage in their health care plans if they have health care at all. So that is a real barrier. And then uh, kind of B of that is that it's harder to provide, provide uh, or excuse me, to find providers in rural or economically depressed areas. Um, I know when I used to work in Trenton to transportation, believe it or not, I know it was a city, but transportation was sometimes an issue for kids just getting to therapy. And then I would say is my number three uh, wait list for new patients. Believe it or not, because of all the rise in mental health care, it's really difficult for people to get in right away. It could be weeks or months before uh, you can get on a, a, uh, a caseload for a, health, a mental health care provider. So that is my top three. I don't know if you have anything to add to that or any comments on my no, top I, three. I, I mean, the only comments I would make, I think on the stigma piece, I mean, one of my hopes here is that one of the, you know, positive legacies of all the negative things that took place kind of during COVID was the fact that I do think we are probably in a different environment right now mm -hmm. when it comes to stigmatization of mental health. And certainly there is still stigma out there. Um, my observation and my, my hope combination uh, would be that we're in a little bit of a better position now than mm -hmm. kind of we were, say, you know, five or even kind of three, three years ago. Um, you know, the other, the other point I want to make here is just really uh, when it comes to mental health care right now, I think it's all about equity and it's all about access. I think those mm -hmm. are two really important pieces. Your conversations about access to me just really highlight the importance of schools as delivery points for high quality mental health care because, sure. mm -hmm. you know, especially if mental health care services are being provided kind of by the school or by the school with supplemental funding and their reliance on their ability to bill out to Medicaid and things of that nature. Ultimately, I think that's a key piece of us creating kind of a more equitable um, uh, kind of access, you know, platform for mental health care overall, because, you know, all students are going to school and uh, they, they that, that uh, can be kind of a common denominator access point uh, for a lot of young people. So it's a big I part agree. of the equation. I do agree. That's why what we do is so important in schools. Absolutely. Agree. agree. So what, why don't we uh, shift gears to uh, our new story for today? The, the news story, and again, as with all of our news stories, you'll find access to these on our website and on our social media feeds, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, and, and LinkedIn. And I know I, I said on my last podcast, Twitter, if it is still around in two weeks, and apparently it's still around, so it's that's good. Around. Maybe hopefully at the at the time of, uh, you know, folks are listening to this, Twitter will 
still be there. Uh, who knows? Who knows what's going to be happening there? So, um, the title of this article, and this is on CNN Health, uh, it is uh, Teens' Brains Age Faster During the First Year of the Pandemic, Study Says, and Stress may be to blame. So there's been a tremendous amount of research, I think, in uh, you know the last year, the last two years on the impact of the pandemic on mental health system, um, um, symptoms. The study described in this article is probably like the, the most detailed in terms of looking at kind of the, the biological kind of drivers of what's actually taking place with kind of, you know, brain functioning and, and brain chemistry. So this is uh, describing an uh, article or a research study from the journal Biological Psychiatry. And uh, as the title indicates, the study uh, found that teen brains aged faster during the pandemic. And the, the background of the study was interesting. So this was a group of researchers who were actually looking at um, uh, gender differences in kind of uh, brain development. Mm. And they were uh, they took a bunch of students aged nine to 13, and their goal was beginning like, like six years ago to do functional MRIs of these students' brains every two years. And the study got interrupted by the pandemic. And so, uh, and they took two years off. And when they came back, they actually decided to uh, I guess continue to do their their gender differences study, but they they also said, hey, wait, we've got kind of like this really interesting data set of functional MRIs from before the pandemic and functional MRIs from after the pandemic. Let's just take a look at whether or not there's a difference in kind of you know what what brains actually look like. And what they found was that um, portions of the brain had actually grown much faster than normal kind of during the pandemic. So. Uh, and this is one of my my favorite you know words describing a part of the brain, but it's the amygdala. So the mm -hmm. amygdala is the portion of the brain that regulates fear and stress. Mm -hmm. That actually kind of developed much more rapidly than uh, you know it normally would for students of this age group. And then the the hippocampus, which actually controls access to memories, also grew much faster. And then the portion of the brain that actually controls like decision making and executive function, that actually thinned out. So that actually was like very stunted in its in its development. And so the, the hypothesis here is that all of these things together help to explain some of the mental health challenges that we're seeing with with students. We've actually got, you know, students who have had to kind of respond a lot more to fear and stress. Um, you know, we've got maybe maybe issues with kind of, you know, you know, access to memories. I, I wonder if that has to do with like, you know, you know, brain fog and and, you know, this this dynamic that we all have during COVID that it seems like like time has no meaning and one month seems like a year yes. or a year seems like a month kind of, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, kind of executive functioning, students' ability to self-regulate and to self-regulate their schedules during like periods of remote learning. We know how challenging that was. All of these things together, I think, can help to explain, at least in part, some of the, the uh, mental health challenges that students have seen at a heightened level during COVID. Sure. I mean, this is a lot of the work that we do with, with teachers in schools describing exactly what you just articulated very well about the brain function, the hippocampus and the amygdala, that, you know, high amounts of cortisol and adrenaline cause a lot of, uh, you know, horrific impacts on those areas of the brain. So I think, you know, that we already knew that was on the rise pre-pandemic and now it's sort of a universal ace for everyone. So now, you know, a lot of kids are dealing with those same type of challenges, whereas before the pandemic, well, it was on the rise. I would agree. Um, I would know, agree. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nominate uh, amygdala as one of my top 10 favorite words of all time. Oh, yeah? Just a great word. I just, I could, <laughs> I could say it, I could say it all day. So maybe... The amygdala can be the official brain component of the Mind Bee podcast. Well, okay, that'll, that'll I'll, be the, I'll go yeah. with that. Got I'll it. Go with that.
All right. Well, without further ado, uh, I would love to move to introducing our uh, guest for today. Uh, our guest is John Zogby. As I mentioned before, John is the senior partner of John Zogby Strategies. John is a pollster, author, trend spotter, and thought leader. He spent the past four decades as one of the most accurate pollsters in the world. Uh, he's conducted business in over 80 countries and uh, really specializes in finding meaning, story, direction, and helping to make sense of data that he he uh, and, and his team collect. His client list is a who's who of Fortune 500 companies, companies like GE, Microsoft, Cisco, Coca-Cola. Uh, and he's also worked with a tremendous number of government agencies, the U.S. State Department, U.S. DOD, uh, the mayors of New York City, Houston, and Miami. Uh, he is a former senior advisor at the Belfer Center of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. He is the first senior fellow at the Institute of Policy Research and Catholic Studies at the Catholic University of America. Uh, he has received an unbelievable three honorary doctorates. I think you and I are still working on our right. first one, right, <laughs> yes, right Lynn? And uh, sure. one Chancellor's Award for Excellence. Uh, and his three sons have followed in his footsteps and work with him in uh, his his current organization, John Zogby Strategies. He lives with his wife, Kathy, who is a former former special education teacher, so very relevant to our conversation today. Uh, and she's also a children's book author, and they live in upstate New York, uh, right near the great city of Utica. John, welcome to the My Beat Podcast. Welcome. We're really excited for you to join us today. Yes, we are. Duncan and Lynn, thank you so much again for the opportunity to work with you um, and to, to work with you on a on a topic that we not only have work experience, but life experience as well. I was a teacher and uh, mental health has been um, a passion of mine and my wife's uh, personally for many years. So this was a labor of love and I, I appreciate that. John, what did you teach? What subject? Uh, history and political science. Okay. Excellent. Oh, very nice. I was a poli-sci major myself. I was also a former educator. Um, so thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're really excited to have this conversation with you. So first, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and kind of how you became an expert in the world of polling and, and how have you evolved in this field? So as I mentioned, I, I was a, a teacher, community college and the State University of New York, uh, going back to the 70s. I was also a left-wing political activist at the same time. And that uh, culminated in a run for mayor of, of Utica. Uh, I came in third in a Democratic primary with three candidates. So that'll tell you something. But I did a poll with my students and I knew exactly how much I was going to lose by it. This is a true story. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess uh, the, the old Thomas Marshall quote, I'd rather be right than president. Uh, I've always been fascinated by polls. And so by the mid 80s, I started John Zogby and Associates and I did the the blue highways approach. If you know the work of William Least Heat Moon, uh, I didn't have the giant clientele. I was the one who went into the small cities and towns and the ca candidate for sheriff as opposed to the candidate for governor. That's how I spent uh, the, the 1980s, but built it really then from the bottom up. Very cool. So, so John, tell us about the survey that we just worked on together. Uh, who did you talk to and what questions were we trying to answer as part of this? Sure. Uh, we did two separate surveys with one of 200, let's call it senior school officials, um, decision makers. So superintendents, assistant superintendents, principals, and the like. Uh, and then we did, this is nationwide, of course, and a nationwide survey of 1,000 parents of K through 12 
students, essentially asking them with a, a few tweaks here and there, the same exact questions about, um, about mental health, mental health as a priority, the confidence uh, in the school system uh, in dealing with, with mental health, um, satisfaction, lack of satisfaction, the next steps in the future. It's a pretty comprehensive survey, about 25 questions altogether. So what did that survey tell you about the state of mental health then? Those were some great questions. What did it reveal? Well, it's acute. I, I mean, um, you know, 90% um, uh, of school administrators said that it, it was a, a serious or, or, or moderately serious uh, challenge, 70% of, of parents. There's a recognition, as Duncan was pointing out just a little earlier, that um, this is a time when mental health is on the radar screen. We all remember when uh, it was not on the radar screen uh, at all. And the sense also from the survey that the um, while a sense that progress is being made in identifying the problem, that it is still a serious and growing uh, uh, problem for, for school uh, districts. John, I think one of the things the survey also looked at was kind of trends, right? Because we're obviously in a super dynamic and rapidly changing environment when it comes to school-based mental health and our insights as to as to what's going on. What did the survey tell us about some of the trends? Anything in particular taking place over the last year, say? Well, I think so. Sure. I think the, the, the top line here is that two-thirds of the school administrators said that in the last year, uh, the the issue the problem of mental health has either stayed the same or gotten worse. And uh, that was 80, then compare that with 85% of parents. So that's what we're talking about recognition. When I see numbers that high, we're looking at a community or, or we're looking at a consensus. Got it. So in other words, this is not only on the radar screen, it's a priority. Yeah, one of the things I really noticed in here, too, is the market difference between um, the overall respondents in rural areas. I think that the number yes. in rural areas was something like, what, a, also 85 percent in terms of uh, mm -hmm. uh, versus the 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 65 percent or so uh, with, with the broader population who said that mental health challenges had degraded. And I think that seems to track with what we've been reading about and hearing with, with respect to uh, um, clinician shortages and shortage of mental health care providers in, in, in rural, rural areas? Well, yeah, you know, for many of us, this is an urban country, a metropolitan country, and, um, uh, you know, life in the rural areas um, is invisible to, to many of us, perhaps most of all to policymakers. And so here was a statement that just as we learned a couple of decades ago about drug problems uh, and you know unwed parenthood, teen parenthood, and so on, uh, the issue of mental health uh, is seen as even more acute in rural areas than in uh, either larger urban areas or larger school districts, because we broke things down by school district sizes as well. So, uh, John, you heard me mention, or perhaps you heard me mention at the top of the uh, of the of the podcast that I cited as one of the three hurdles to uh, getting health care, excuse me, mental health care for for kids was stigma, and a lot of times it's familial yeah. stigma. So, I'm curious, what did the survey tell uh, tell you about parents' attitudes about whether schools should be providing mental health support uh, for their children? Well, you know, it, it's interesting that 
uh, while um, the superintendents, you know, uh, listed it as the highest priority, um, among parents it was split as to whether the highest priority or a priority. And I think a lot of that has to do, Lynn, with what you pointed out, that it's still a stigma, that it's still a NIMBY sort of thing, uh, not not my child, it's somebody else's child, mm-hmm. hence not the biggest priority for me. And I think going forward, that's going to be a hurdle. I know that you're going to ask me a little later for some thoughts on where I think we need to move forward, and I'll just tantalize <laughs> you right now. So, so John, when it, when it comes to confidence level of districts that they have and their ability to provide um, mental health services to students, what, what, did, what did administrators tell us and what did, what did parents tell us? How are they feeling about the readiness of the system to uh, help uh, be, be part of the mental health care continuum in a school-based environment? Well, you know, about three in four of the school administrators um, felt that they were confident uh, in, in addressing the issue. That's a nuanced result. I'll, I'll explain that in a second. Three out of five or around 60% of parents were confident. Now, where's the nuance come in? I think that administrators, and to become an administrator means you've been around for a while. I think what they're confident in the fact that they're implementing and uh, uh, making uh, uh, changes and, uh, and creating programs as they go along. So there is the confidence level. Had we asked, are you confident that you the, the crisis has been eradicated, that would have been a different question. Parents, uh, you know, 60% uh, are confident, that's good, but I think, um, you know, the those who are not confident, that could very well be the fear that other kids aren't being dealt with, not mm-hmm. anything about my kids. Got it. Got it. I think that uh, that's a that's a great point. So I, it sounds like with uh, with administrators, the distinction you're drawing there might be a statement of confidence that initiatives are being implemented, but not necessarily a statement of confidence about whether or not those initiatives are achieving the desired result. Yeah, exactly. And I think again, if we go back even to our own experiences, look at what we're talking about today. We couldn't talk about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 2010 years ago, the, the stigma was was that great. Sure. I, I'd like to point out um, that in terms of my experience, we, we've done 75, 80 school districts over the last 30 years, getting into many of these, uh, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll uh everything. We've polled middle schoolers and high schoolers. In addition to that, I've, I have written pretty extensively both books and, and articles about age cohorts. And this is not, none of this is a surprise to me because with each age cohort, the younger you get, the more acute uh, is the, uh, are the issues of stress, um, psychological damage, uh, suicide, uh, we're at Gen Z right now, and uh, we thought maybe things had peaked with millennials, who up to that point had been the most stressed out of the age cohorts, but uh, Gen Z even more so. That's a great, great point. 
Good point. So I'm going to shift the focus a little bit. Let's talk about funding. So, you yeah. know, we, we highlighted that one of the uh, silver linings of the pandemic has been that now mental health is on the radar. Um, in our previous uh, episode, we talked a lot about federal funding for for uh, mental health in schools. So I'm curious what your polls revealed about administrations or administrators' feelings and attitudes about funding mental health initiatives. You know, it's interesting because ju just about half and half, half felt that they need more information mm. about funding. Now, to be honest, we had a, out of 200 school officials, when you break it down to rural areas, you've got a small subsample. But I think in particular, you'd find, um, you can extrapolate a little bit that particularly in rural areas, there is a sense that something is being missed. Mm. And that is the, the, is there sufficient funding? Are there sufficient resources in general? But yeah, half felt that they had enough information, uh, half, give or take a few points, felt that they needed uh, more information. But it's changing so quickly too. I mean, we, you know, as an organization, yeah. this is all we focus on. It's hard for us to keep track of it some, sometimes. I mean, you've got your your federal tranche of dollars and those programs are changing all the time, mm -hmm. but then every state has its own kind of, you know, you know, specific set of initiatives focused on on mental health mm -hmm. or on school-based mental health. And uh, I, I can certainly appreciate how challenging it could be for uh, a superintendent in a, in a you know, rural environment to, to keep tabs on, on, on all of that. For sure. I'm curious too, like, you know, so when you talk about rural areas versus maybe more urban or suburban areas, uh, are you saying that the polls reveal that there's just less uh, resources in those areas or that they're, the attitudes are different about mental health? No, uh, the sense, at least from this question, that uh, more resources are going to be needed. Ah, okay. I mean, what was clear, you know, just uh, with the several questions that we've just been dealing with is that, yes, we've made progress, but we do know that there's a whole lot more to do. But as Duncan points out, it's moving so quickly. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, that's not going to come out of property taxes. Right. You know, that's for sure. We're talking about massive investments. But there's a recognition here that this is a priority issue. So, John, let's shift a little bit to, you know, I, this might be a good segue into some of the solutions conver conversation. But, you know, did the, what did the survey reveal in terms of priorities for educators and parents about where they think that focus is needed when it comes to mental health in schools? Well, uh, you know, professional training, you know, in particular for staff, uh, there, there was a, a concern that um, while they may have a handle on on one student or one issue, what if multiple issues came about? Um, uh, a, a need for more coordination with um, the rest of the community and, and other agencies. There, I, I think we have a clear path here that um, schools don't want to be, uh, they don't want to be in their role that we used to call, use the term in loco parentis. You know, here, drop your kid off at school and then for eight hours, you don't have to deal with them every day. The school's got it. Well, that can't exist. Yeah, the other thing that really jumped out at me in the results was around around screening, right? And this is something we talked about in our last episode, but um, and I, I think the way it was worded in the survey was, 
uh, roughly half, and I'm going off memory here, of respondents said that they needed more help in identifying students who might be flying under the radar screen or who might not be kind of on on the districts kind of, uh, you know, uh, that, that they might not be aware that they have kind of a mental health challenge. And I think that gets into some interesting policy discussions around the need for universal mental health screening. How can districts kind of be kind of more uh, more proactive around that? And as you know, this this brings up the political issue as well of um, of uh, parental rejection, much like they reject um, vaccines in many instances or um, critical race theory, whatever that is, um, which is not being taught anywhere, actually. Um, But, you know, the whole notion then of my my kids privacy. On the other hand, um, you know, this is something that that has to be done. you know, how many times do we see when there is a an acute crisis, someone saying, if we'd only known? I agree with that. I, when I was um, from sixth grade through my junior year of high school, my mother was dying of cancer. And I didn't have any behavior problems, but I did have a lot of academic problems. I now know today, I used to feel a lot of shame over that as a child, but I now know uh, that I didn't have the bandwidth, that we talked about the amygdala and the hippocampus, and there is a shrinking of the hippocampus when there is extreme amount of stress. Uh, and so now I, I you know, have some empathy and compassion for my, for my youth. But I remember thinking how much I would love to speak to a mental health professional, and this was in the late 90s, um, and what behavior would I have to manifest or, or uh, you know, make up, if you will, so that I could get the help that I needed or have someone to talk to. And to your point, Duncan, when you don't show these acute signs or when you're not a, a real behavior problem or challenging, that doesn't mean that you don't also need some support with mental health. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with that, that there needs to be some type of screening or some way to uh, get kids that may not be on the radar with behavior problems. Yeah, and thanks for sharing that. I think that does highlight, I, I, I'm kind of reflecting on how different I think that would be today in most communities. I think you probably would have more access now, hopefully, than you would you would have had kind of in the in the late 90s. I think, I think John, you're bringing up a really, you know, good, good point about some of the inherent tensions here. When I think about the next five years about how this is going to evolve, I think that's going to be a, you know, kind of a probably a national and regional and even local in, in some cases, you know, school board by school board debate about, you know, the tension between, you know, identifying students who, who need care and some of the these, uh, um, you know, questions around kind of, you know, parental choice and privacy and, and uh, uh, things of, of that nature. So I, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, kind of I think the, the, the lines are drawn for that debate here to take place here in the, in the, in the coming years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I, I was struck right before we, we started the podcast and I jotted down a couple of notes that one of the great uh, American anthropologists uh, was a fellow, we're going back 50, 60 years, Ashley Montague, and wrote a lot about race and racism. And what particularly moved me about his work on racism is that he devoted an entire appendix to the city of Springfield in the 1940s, where there was a sense that racism was percolating and brewing. And the mayor uh, convened a series of town hall public meetings, and they defined racism as a community issue that required a plethora of, of resources 
and that they defined that what they needed to do was an inoculation. I loved that term. You know, early intervention, inoculation, not the overworked school psychologist down the whole hall who's got 18 students outside her door waiting to be counseled, but, you know, a community-wide effort where all resources are pooled in. Um, that would be how I would approach uh, the, this issue, either as a national community or state community, or even on, on a local level. Uh, define it as a priority, mental health as a priority. Bring parents into the process early. Um, outreach to the broader community as well to define where the resources are. Early screening and a premium on new diagnostics and then triage. Triage with, as you're seeing in the battle on crime, rather than sending two cops, you know, chasing after someone, you got a social worker and a physician all there, and then you decide on the spot, you know, who takes the lead. So there, it's out there and the solutions are out there. Now it needs the will and obviously the funding. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, I think, I think the, you know, I think we're fortunate right now in that, you know, public attention and the attention of, of media and the attention of society, I think, is more focused on this than it ever has before. So I'm really hopeful that that's going to translate into some of the, like, the productive policy discussions in the way that you're describing. So I'm curious, uh, you know, if you could change uh, or if you had all encompassing power, if you could wave your magic wand, what are some of the things that, or what, what if any aspect of school-based mental health care would you change? I have a feeling where it might go, given what we've talked about already, but I'm curious what your response would be. Well, I, I think the early screening and diagnostics mm -hmm. are absolutely necessary. We wanna be very careful here. We don't wanna mark people for life, but what we want to do is, is create a profile so that they're you know, there, there can be intervention uh, of some sort. Secondly, there's a parental movement, you know, and the parental movement that was so present in 2021 in Virginia, right, elected a governor and uh, almost, to everybody's surprise, almost elected a governor in New Jersey. That movement's out there and it's present in school district uh, elections throughout the country. The, the, um, Parents need to be brought in. They, there is a sense that um, decisions are made by elitist state school officials and um, they need to be heard. Absolutely. And, yeah. they, need, and they need to put their, their work where their mouth is. Okay, if, if we're going to deal with this problem, what do you have? What do you bring to the table? Yeah, I, I, think, it's, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody right now or very few people i think who haven't had some type of you know inner relationship with with kind of the role of mental health in their in their life right with themselves with a yes. family member with a friend it is one of those things that i think is uh 
um, you know, and, and especially now with some of the destigmatization, I think we're able to have some of these more open discussions around it, or at least I hope that we uh, we are. How about your, you know, John, you're, you're, we always like to ask guests, like, what's in your personal mental health toolkit in terms of how you relax, kind of take stress off, anything that you'd want to share kind of with our listenership here about the, the John Zogby handbook of uh, stress management and mental health care? I walk every day, you know, unless there's a, a blizzard of some sort, then I walk in the house and that annoys everybody. But I, I, on a normal day, I, I, I walk uh, in the late morning and then I've got my friend here that uh, is uh, my, my uh, uh, mental health coach. <laughs> got it. Yeah, got uh, it. And I walk together and that's very good for me. Um, also, I, I read novels. I have a, a day book, which is generally nonfiction, and then a late evening and uh, a book, uh, novels that just de- both de-stresses me or at least makes me feel, hey, my problems aren't as bad as this character's. Got it, got it, got it. Any, any book recommendations that you'd like to share? Oh, there's so, there are so many. I, um, I'm a huge fan of, of Michael Connelly. Um, and uh, well, John Grisham, of course. Um, there are some you've never heard of. Uh, Jake Needham is is wonderful, and and um, uh, uh, now this is the senior moment. Ken Follett. Oh sure, yeah. His yeah, historical yeah. novels are mag- just magnificent. Yeah, Pillars of the Earth and uh, things like that. Right? So, yeah, yeah. And then he's got uh, a, a 20th century. Yeah, yeah. yeah those are good. Those are good for sure. Uh, Fall of Giants and uh, all of those. So, yes. Yeah. Got it. I, I'm, I'm a Ken Follett fan as well. So uh, thanks for thanks for sharing. Anything on the nonfiction front you want to share? Yeah, I am. This is going to require some spelling here. Parag Khanna is a young millennial. P-A-R-A-G-K-H-A-N-N-A, writing about the next world. And so he, what he has written about uh, is, one book is How to Run the World, a whole new paradigm for how decisions will be made independent of nation states. I like to think even further past. Another is called Connectography, where supply chains, um, uh, is and the way we do finances, even before crypto, uh, will transcend all national borders. Is already doing that. So supply chains will require a, a change in how we do business um, and how we structure our, our our governments and and communities. And then the book that I just finished now is called Move, and it is about uh, the human. Uh, value of migration and so now you we are seeing and will continue to see a giant uplift like the southern hemisphere lifting up a carpet and millions upon millions of people moving to the to the north uh climate change is doing that in addition to opportunity 
Interesting. Great, great recommendations, John. Thanks for uh, thanks for for sharing those. And I want to thank you for your time. This has been incredibly helpful. Uh, more, more than anything, I want to thank you for partnering with us on this survey. Uh, really hopeful that together we can we can just cast a bright light on on some of the attitudes and beliefs of administrators and parents when it comes to school based mental health. So we really appreciate you and your your team and the opportunity to work with you on this. Thank you, and we're on call, so let us know. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Good to meet you. Thanks, John. Have a great rest of the day. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, Lane, uh, final segment of the day. What what, uh, inspired you this week? Anything uh, that you want to share? Yes, I do. So um, one of my coworkers here at ESS said to me a while back, um, you got to have LFTs, and that's look forward to. He said, Uh, it's great to have you. That's Frank um, Lecklinger said to me, you got to have some LFT. So my LFT that's inspiring me to get through the rest of this week and even part of next week uh, is I'm going off to Maui to visit my sister and her family. My son and I are going out there. And so we're going to have a Maui Christmas. And so I um, am just seeing myself on the beach and taking long walks and snorkeling. And that is helping me finish out strong this uh, last uh, you know, part of December before I go on vacation. Starting every morning with positive visualization of oh, you yes. in Maui. I'm and, already uh, in Maui mentally. It's uh, <laughs> it's just just a couple of days in a plane ride away, and I will sounds, be there. Two plane rides, as the case may be. That sounds incredible. So, <laughs> yeah, for for me, um, uh, uh, and this is a, a you know non school based mental health related one, but I had a chance to take two of my girls to uh, a Philadelphia Eagles game, uh, mm-hmm. as you as you know, and you're a E A G L. There you go. Yeah, so that that was part of the inspiring piece for me. This is their first uh, uh, Eagles professional football game, kind of for uh, each of them. And uh, you know, while at an first game, first game, game. and so it's a mixed bag. I think at an Eagles game, you're going to see like your fair share of inebriations and things that like uh, (laughs) all kinds of shenanigans. Yeah, you don't necessarily want your kids seeing, but but getting to go through and like having them like literally walk through the concourse and like have. You know, random people high fiving them mm-hmm. and spontaneous like E A G L E S, you know, chants and the you know fly, fly eagles, fly, eagles fly. So, fly. So that was that was really cool. <laughs> and so I mean, the big picture for me, like sports has played a you know watching sports and, and being a fan of teams has been something that has been like a constant in my life. So I used to live in Hawaii when I was in the Navy, and I remember. 30 years ago, waking up at like 6 a.m. to go watch an NFL game. And you could always walk yeah. into a restaurant or a bar yes. kind of in Hawaii. And there's like, you don't know anybody, but there's like the little corner of Eagles fans. So that you happened know, to me too. Totally. I, I was in awesome, right? We found so, a bar. We found there's Eagles bars all over the country, believe it or not. Yeah. Like so, it, but, but to me, it's like, why, why do we watch sports? Why do we torture ourselves? I actually find like, like a lot of my time spent watching sports. It's kind of unpleasant. I don't yeah. actually enjoy it. It's like, you know, this torturous yeah. type of process. But Can I think be. you, but Can I think be. you do it for connection. And I mm-hmm. love that connection aspect of it and I love the fact that my kids got to experience that so that was really uh, that, that was really cool. cool yeah that is cool Okay, well, really excited uh, for us to get the chance to speak with John Zogby today. Lane, always a pleasure uh, seeing you. And uh, thank you, dear listener, for joining in on another episode of the MindBeat podcast. And we hope you are enjoying it. This is our third episode right now, third-ish episode right now. And uh, uh, we welcome any feedback. Please feel free to reach out to us on on social or uh, via our Effective School Solutions website. And uh, we thank all of you for what you're doing each and every day to support the mental health of uh, students and family members and uh, the staff members that are serving and supporting them. Um, Have a great day. Bye, everybody. The MindBeat podcast is a production of Effective School Solutions. MindBeat represents the opinions of Duncan Young, Lane Whitaker, and their guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. 
please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or your local health care provider. Thank you.